are listening to A Night Dream. A Night Dream podcast. Well, uh, one day I would like to finish the two books that I started You are listening to A Night Dream. A Night Dream podcast. first night dream of the episode is called Cutting Through the Glaze of Stone. You move house and decide that you want almost every surface to be coated in black and white tiles, something like a chessboard. The tiles aren't expensive, so you just buy them and pay someone to do it for you. When the whole house is tiled, you're really happy with the result. The tiler is also pleased with the result, proud of their own precision. It's fine when you're alone, and fine when friends visit, but when friends of friends visit, you're forced to explain that you just had the idea, and you thought that it would look good, and you still enjoy how the tiles look every day when you see them, and it's so much better than the house that you moved from, which was unambitious through and through. No, you find yourself repeating, you're not some kind of eccentric, no, there was no sale on at the tile shop. The truth is that you like how the tiles look. You live alone and you like how the tiles look. You begin to realize that other people are the problem. They're slowly making good bad. You personally don't believe that every action of every person must be ruthlessly analyzed, torn into its component parts. So you draw a line, separating yourself from friends of friends not realizing that in doing so, you too are taking part in a slow bitterness. You tell your friends that you will see them, but less, and only in their plainer homes. You just can't understand, now that everyone has so much access to paint, and still chooses to be so mild. But your friends find it boring, and are bored of talking about it. You move to your front door and look out of the round, porthole-style window next to it. One of the many mistakes made by whoever built your house. You often think about replacing it with a square window, but the tiler did such a good job around the window that you know it wouldn't feel fair to remove it. The next night dream is called No Peace. You work in a retirement home. You respect the people that you care for. They obviously don't want to be old or ill, and they really don't enjoy relying on others to do the things that they used to do easily. After you clean room 10, you move into room 11. You expected it to be empty, but you see the silhouette of an elderly man lying on the bed. His white vest is drenched in sweat, and his hands cling to the shoulder straps of the vest. He doesn't notice you and continues staring intently at the ceiling. He asks God for just one night of sleep. One easy night's sleep, that's all. He notices you and sits up quickly. You tell him that breakfast is only out for another 30 minutes, and after that it's just cereal and juice. He knows that already. You tell him that you'll come back to clean his room later, and he thanks you, but his eyes remain hard. You move into room 12 and get to work. The occupier doesn't have anything on the shelves, so they're easy for you to clean. 
You start changing the bed and feel a lump in one of the pillowcases. It's a diary, which you immediately open. The front is empty, but the last few pages are full of sayings, marked with different dates. Things like, put him through the meat grinder, December 20th. Things could have been different, you know. It's always the wise guys, March 6th. Start breaking some fingers. That'll help his memory, September 9th. You quickly return the diary, but as you do, you see patient 12 standing in the door to the room. They see the diary in your hand and gesture to the room next door. He talks in his sleep. The next night dream is called The Astronaut. You want to scream. Everything has happened almost exactly as you imagined it would. Except, instead of feeling calm and in control, you want to scream. You think back to your training and all the worst-case scenarios that you've prepared for. None of them have prepared you to feel this miserable, this cut off from the world and frightened. You knew something was off when you crossed the platform and entered the rocket. You looked across the railing and imagined what it would be like if you didn't want to go to space in the rocket, but only realised moments before. Now that you are in the rocket, you feel slightly better. You dread the imaginary press conference about why you backed out at the last possible moment. You picture yourself holding a microphone, saying, Then I realised that I do not want to go to space, and hundreds of cameras flashing in response. So you strap yourself into the special chair that will hold you in place during takeoff. The gentle tension of the straps increases your unease. You've been holding yourself rigid, and as you attempt to soften up and breathe, your body disobeys you. Very, very quietly, you whisper into your helmet, I want to get off, I would like to leave, and your breath catches on the glass before dissipating. Your co-pilot strains in their seat, wondering if they heard you or imagined it. You think about repeating yourself when you hear that they are about to disengage the crew access service arm, and you turn your head to your co-pilot, but you can't see their face through the side of your helmet. You want to get their attention, but you don't want to call out on the tannoy, so you start moving your fingers up and down on the armrest, slowly and rhythmically at first, but quickly becoming violent and chaotic. Now you are certain that you want to get off the ship, you don't want to go to space, and you don't care what people will say. You start pushing every button you can reach out of desperation, and you notice your co-pilot getting out of their seat, and you hear them asking if you're okay through the intercom, and you ignore them. Instead, you start turning dials and flicking switches even faster. You are pleased when you notice that they also look afraid. The next night dream is called Defrost by Weight. It's your lucky day, you think to yourself. Providence. You're third in the queue to use the office microwave. You don't recognise the person currently using the microwave, but you do recognise the person directly ahead of you. You really think that they are the head of commissioning, and as you understand it, nothing gets the go-ahead without their say-so. They are near or past retirement age, and you've heard whispers in the office. 
people are doubting them, their commissions are too safe or too uninformed. You heard your manager say that in this age, you simply have to employ trend forecasters. Everyone does it. The arts, fashion, and it should go without saying television. And you believe them. You haven't prepared a pitch, but firmly believe in the clarity of your idea. So you think of a beginning, middle and end and start talking. This is the moment. The pitch that for good or bad, you will eventually tell everyone you know about. You begin and realise that you don't know their name, so you stop awkwardly and they don't respond. There is no indication that they ever heard a word you said, so you start again, saying hi, louder. They turn around and begin to remove their headphones. Hello, they say, and they pause with the boldness of someone who can be bold and proud, but knows that they cannot leave. You say that you know who they are and what they do, and that you have an idea you think they would like. It's typed up and good, but you thought you could tell them while they wait for their food to heat up. They look down at their unstained Tupperware and back to you. They open the microwave and gesture for you to begin. Their body language is open, but half laughing, they look at the microwave and say, Isn't this your chance? It looks like you've got me for a full five minutes. And it hurts you. It's exactly what you want, but for a moment their cavalier lightness dazes you. Yes, you want to say, it hurts that something you obviously care about is so low on their list that they can afford a total lightness in their attitude. They could help you in a moment, but you can already tell how uninterested they are. You nod, affronted but still slightly grateful, and can't help but imagine them sliding their hand into your pocket and taking out your wallet, slowly removing, examining, then dropping your things to the ground. A debit card, almost. They could spend this in one lunch. A driver's license, something you don't need in this city. You do look tired in the picture though, worn down or bored. The library card from your hometown, what a nice memento. And although they could go on forever, you realise that the only way to stop these thoughts is to begin your pitch, so you start. So, superhero films are doing well at the moment, they nod. And people are also very interested in historical action films, they nod again. Well, you know Westerns, but what about the other side, the Native Americans? They look at you, and then the microwave. You accidentally start to speed up. Well, imagine the truck is carrying nuclear waste headed west from Florida. The truck or train crashes onto its side or gets derailed, and all of the toxic waste goes into the ground. It's in barrels, right? With hazard signs on the side, you know the ones. They nod but less go on and more quizzical. The dead Native Americans that were killed by cowboys or settlers come back to life, but now they have glowing green eyes and they're the good guys. They return to their ancestral lands, yearning for their peaceful lives, but no. The ruins of now desolate factories mark the land they used to respect and treasure. They make a base in a derelict fast food chain or a diner, the camera cuts to their memories of children frolicking in grassy meadows. Have you heard of Iron Eyes Cody? That vibe, anyway. They have been wronged and now all they want is revenge against corporate America. 
Oh, I forgot, they have spirit animals, which glow green because of the radiation. We could design a range of toys based on them. Now, have you seen Lord of the Rings? Of course you have. One of the characters has to have a bow and arrow. It's a non-negotiable. At some point in the film, they shoot a rope and it helps them escape. While surveying the town, they meet a descendant of Tomahawk, who runs a comic book store on the outskirts of the city. Tomahawk, he's the main character. He used to be the chief, and he was tricked into peace by a cowboy, who I think should have an English accent. Anyway, Tomahawk picks up a comic which has Mount Rushmore on the front, and he grimaces. Cut to a flashback, which reveals a founding father killing Tomahawk, who now plans to get his revenge. It turns out that the Founding Fathers never died and live under Mount Rushmore, but they are bad zombies with red eyes instead of green. The Founding Fathers must be destroyed for the good guys to find peace. When the zombie Founding Fathers are destroyed, the Native Americans sigh and it's clear that they now know peace. Think Marvel meets Dracula. What do you think? You look at the microwave and the light is still on and two minutes remain. The last night dream of the episode is called The Integrated Man. You are hiking when you think you hear someone crying in the woods. You follow the noise through a gap in the trees and see a man half submerged in a huge rock. At first you think that he's just lying against the rock but as you get closer, it looks like the man has sunk into it. You ask if he's okay, and still looking at the sky, he says, I am heartbroken. As you move closer, you can see that the front half of his body protrudes from the rock, while his back is obscured in the rock. You ask if he is stuck and needs help. He says that he is not stuck, but that he is here because there are too many things that are making his life impossible. His body looks like it has melted into the rock face, and you ask him if there is a groove the shape of his body that he is lying in, or if something worse has happened. He tells you that he wants to erode with the rock face, that at first he used to enjoy sitting against it, but now wants to become a part of it. He says that it started when he tried to find somewhere peaceful and lasting, because before he left the valley he led a distracted life where he rarely looked out at the sky. Now, although you have caught him at a bad time, he is free to stare out over the trees, the valley, and into the sky. You ask him if he is sure that he made the right decision, because if he wants you to, you could go back into the valley, get your tools from the town, and see if you can pry him loose from the rock. He tells you that he left a lot of things in the valley, but is content to be here now, that he left his entire life in the valley and won't go back. You tell him that you aren't trying to convince him to do anything, but that personally you don't think there is enough in his new life to sustain him. You begin to regret being so vocally judgmental, so you try to say something nice to the man. You ask him if he wants anything to eat or drink, and he says no. So you ask him why he was crying, if he's happy with his choices, and he says that whatever choices he makes will end in the same way. Wincing, you tell him that it is okay, and that he can tell you if he is stuck. At this, he continues to stare coldly at the sky, 
trying not to blink.